All right, there you are. I'm Pastor Gillespie. And we are in the book of Hebrews this evening. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to dig right in. I know some of the East Coast folks that have checked in here. I'm just going to pull up my chat window so I can see it. There we are. Yeah, uh, Ruth and Rachel, of course. Looks like my mother's in here. Um, would prefer us not to delay too much. <laughs> it's late night for you. Uh, if you didn't already have a chance to watch or listen to last week's introduction on the book of Hebrews, I'd strongly suggest it. Um, obviously, you can't watch it before this, but I'll have to go back and, and to catch it. And there's a lot of context that I think will be helpful as we, we're working through the book. Um, you know, and in particular, just kind of the structure of the book, but also what's really not a book, it's a sermon, for example. That was one of the things we talked about last week. It doesn't read like a letter. So the last thing that we studied was, of course, 1 Corinthians, um, St. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and that clearly was written as a letter um, to that church there, whereas the book of Hebrews here is more of a, well, for a lack of a better word, it, it is a sermon. Uh, it's preaching, and uh and the motivation to study it is one that I haven't actually taught a Bible class on it before uh, in my 10 years of ministry, so that's always helpful. Yeah, there was a lot of content in, in part one, I agree. I see that in the chat. Um, but also, the reason to study it is that we've been going through Hebrews and Numbers, and we've been doing continuous readings from, from Hebrews each day in our congregation and prayer, uh, and it maybe seems a little bit um, opaque or not, not quite as clear uh, because it's so dense. Uh, it's densely packed with with Old Testament allusion, especially. Uh, allusion, not in, in terms of I-L-L-U-S-I-O-N, but A-L-L, right? Referring back uh, to the Old Testament scriptures. So, uh, so that's the idea, what we're going to do tonight. And uh, we'll see how far we get, but I imagine there's a lot actually to cover in what's called the prologue, uh, verses 1 through 4. So, We'll do our best with that, and uh, we'll see where we get after that. All right, let's begin with prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, um, I'm not going to follow along with the translation up on the screen. Um, I'm going to actually use, a, a, uh, which translation should I have? There's New King James. I think I'll put New King James up on the screen for you there. Why don't we do the one where you can see me? Yeah, that's better. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, but I'm going to do a more literal translation from the Greek for you. I think that will be uh, helpful and illustrative. So I do this often. I encourage people to bring different translations, and then we can compare and contrast. I know that uh, Gus and Eileen, who are here, uh, like to use the Old King James, which is based on the Textus Receptus. Um, the, the majority text is it sometimes called uh, from the Greek and then um, and New King James of course is based on that but with some some uh, adjustments for language uh, English Standard Version on the other hand is based upon uh, a critical edition of of the Greek text where they compare not only the Textus Receptus uh, but to other uh, codexes that is complete editions of the scriptures and then all the various manuscripts and then try to come up what they think is the most legitimate or definitive um, Greek of the New Testament, and uh, we're we're open to that kind of scholarship. By the way, it's worth mentioning, as far as how the text has been received by us, that the New Testament has, um, well, there's many copies available actually, and some of which are, you know, we don't have the original autographs, say from Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or the letters of Paul, um, but we have copies, sometimes incomplete, sometimes complete, even as early as the as the uh, second first and second century. So um, it's worth comparing all of them. And uh, the computers, we can put computers on the task now to compare all the various copies. And we find that there are 99.7 or 8% consistent with one another. So there's not a lot of variation from manuscript to manuscript. Um, sometimes that gets trouted out on National Geographic or uh, some other kind of source. So not as big a deal as people think. Okay. Um, so all that scholarship uh, doesn't really get in the way of our translation. So we've got New King James up. Uh, again, I'll do a translation. So uh, starting right away, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. And formerly 
speaking in many parts and many ways to the fathers by the prophets. In, these last of, in the last of these days, God has spoken to us by the one who is Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he may also made the ages, who being the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his substance and sustaining all things by the utterance of power, having made purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavenly heights, having become so much better than the angels, as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. All right, so a little bit different than what you see on the screen, but hopefully close enough. All right, I'm just changing a setting here. All right, very good. So let's uh, talk about this. Again, it's a prologue. Um, it maybe reminds you a little bit of what the way that St. John opens his gospel, right? Um, where he doesn't really say, like, these are the books of the generations, like you get with Matthew and Luke, you know, or, or the history of Jesus Christ, or something like that. He starts, he's, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, it's this kind of just like explosion right at the beginning of the book, um, jump, you know, retelling basically Genesis at the beginning of the Gospel of John. And here, um, this is not at all like a letter, right? Because the letters are usually addressed, you know, I, I Paul, or O Theophilus, I'm writing to you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's like the beginning of Acts. Here it's, who's the speaker? Who's the one speaking in this book? God, actually. So um, the, the preacher is saying, this is the word of God. This is literally God's um, evocative speech to you, which is, quite different than anything else, all right? Um, so it's God who is the speaker, and how does he speak? Well, he speaks in two ways, primarily, right? And in two different eras. So the way the this prologue is split up, there's uh, speaking by way of the prophets, right? To the fathers, by the prophets. And now in these last days, in, the, in this era, he speaks to us directly by his son, all right? So... Um, there's really no attention in addition to who the author is, apart from being God. I mean, there's obviously great attention to that. But uh, we don't even know who the audience is. I mean, is this the church in Rome? Is this the church? Is this to Corinth? We talked about that in, in the introduction class last week a little bit, at least some hypotheses as to who wrote it and then maybe who he was writing to. Um, but that's not really the point, right? The point is really to grab your attention not with credentials or kind of buttering them up or preparing them to receive, but saying, I'm here, I'm God's uh, mouthpiece, I'm his speaker, and what is said now, um, God is speaking, and he's speaking to you through his son. And uh, notice, too, in many various ways, God has spoken to us. You see that in verse 2? In these last days, he has spoken to us. Now, who is the us that he's speaking of? Well, of course, you identify with that, right, as Christians, so the, to the Christian congregation, uh, to the church. He has spoken to us. Actually, it's to all people, right? Um, so it's like like the, the, the preacher is stepping back, stepping aside, and just saying, now we're just going to listen to the Word of God, right? Um, and this is really what a Christian pre- preacher ought to do, is kind of get himself out of the picture. <laughs> um, think of the way that John the Baptist says it, right? I must decrease that you may increase, right? Uh, and and really that's the job of the preacher is to preach Christ, let Christ be illuminated, to let him be glorified, let him be the one who is revealed and the one who is speaking, uh, and to let all of his nonsense kind of get out of the way. Of course, you know that this is not how Christian pre- preachers often operate, uh, people who call themselves Christian um, sometimes, right? <laughs> Uh, that they will give anecdotes and personal stories and and the sermon sometimes is more about them than it is even about the Christ. And that's exactly the opposite of what the the writer to the Hebrews is doing here. Um, Now, the other thing that you probably can't catch is just how good it sounds in Greek. (laughs) All right, so there's actually all sorts of uh, literary devices being used here. And my my Greek is not such that I can read it in in the poet poetry and the character of the poetry that it is, um, but there's both alliteration and assonance, you know, so it has the same sounds, and so you catch it. So it's like uh, polemeros 
Kai Pulatro, excuse me, Pulatropos, Pilae Hotheos, Lalasas, Tois Patracin in Tois Prophetis, Ep Escatu, Ton Hemeron, Tutone, Helelison, Umen in Huyo. And that keeps going. That's just first one, by the way. All right, so not really great, but you can hear there's a lot of similar sounds, a lot of um, cognates being used there, alliteration and whatnot. So I just wanted to show you that as best I could. All right. Um, let's see, what else did I want to talk about here? All right, again, two eras. So formally spoke um, by way of the prophets. So who are some of those prophets that have spoken to the fathers in times past, in the ages past? Well, of course, Moses, right? And Moses is going to come up in chapter 7, excuse me, and in chapter 9. Uh, let's see who else. Of course, Abraham, he'll be in chapter 11, so we'll hear about him then. And of course, all the spiritual ancestors of the Old Testament. All right, now, in these last days, in this last, how did I translate it before? Let me look at the translation here. My notes. Uh, I flipped too far forward. Um, I've spoken to in these last days. Okay, yeah, it is days. And it's literally, it's days. Now, days is an interesting word, right? Because it can actually have kind of two ideas attached to it. It can mean like literal, the days of creation, for example. Day one, day two, day three, day four, that kind of thing. So more of a time marker. Um, But it can also mean in a general sense of like era, right? Uh, the song came to mind. These are the days. I think it's like Don Henley or something, right? Okay. Um, these are the days in a kind of a, just a broad sense. And like, you know, what the dog days of summer, right? It's not, it's not a particular number of days, but it's those, just that period of time where it's, where it's hot, right? Um, in the summer, hot and humid. So that's the idea here in these last days in this, in this era um, that has been ushered in. We, we call it the era of the church, right? Um, God has his mouthpiece. His mouthpiece is not the prophet, but now it is his son. All right, he's spoken to us by his son. And you note, I've got New King James up here. You notice how the, the his is italicized? You see that? Uh, if we go to English Standard Version, it's this, you see it, it's got a footnote here. All right. Um, and... Uh, the his, I think New King James does a better job by italicizing it. They're telling you it's implied. But it's actually not there. And there's also no article. We'll see later there'll be an article attached to the son. It'll be the son, right? But now notice it's by his son because it's God and then son. But literally, it's actually now in these last days he has spoken to us by son. Son, and, and, and what he's trying to get after there is, oh, the way I translate it is the one who is son, right? Is that it's, it's not just a title, um, but it's that relational word. It's, it, but it is a title as well, but it, you know, it's the eternal um, image of the son. We'll talk more about that in a minute as we um, actually consider the Nicene Creed and the connection to this prologue, but I'm telegraphing a little bit. How does how does the son speak to us now in these last days? This is going to come up frequently throughout the book. He's going to speak to us. Um, his blood is actually the better word that cleanses and sanctifies those who are sprinkled with it. That's in chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 13, chapter 12. Especially chapter 12, verse 24. All right. And uh, God also now speaks to us through his messengers. All right. Um, formerly, and then now in these last days. So we have these like two eras. And I think we would say like, for us, the easiest way to think about it is like the Old Testament, New Testament, right? Old Testament is the prophets. And then the New Testament are the apostles who convey to us um, the word of Jesus. And he spoke, speaks to us differently. And I think this is really important. This is set up right up at the front end, but it's really the whole kind of character of the book. In the Old Testament, he speaks through many intermediaries, right? All these prophets and all of these priests offering sacrifices all the time. 
But now, in the church, there's one priest, there's one prophet, there's one intercessor, there's one sacrifice, there's, it's all been, uh, I think of it like a funnel, it's all been funneled down into Jesus, who is all things and through all things, and is, is everything that all of that was about, right? All of human history is culminated then in his son, and now we live in his son, and we've uh, we live, we breathe, we find our being in Jesus, right? The life of the church is a life in Christ. And everything else, um, you know, was a shale or, or a shadow or, as Paul would say, or, um, you know, a mirror darkly, right? Or dimly. All right. Um, so like in, the, in various ways, in the, in the old times, the various ways that he spoke uh, through the prophets, I mean, you can think about it. Um, he speaks to them through visions, right? He speaks to them. How else did he speak to them? Um, we have through angels, through intermediaries, right? Who came and spoke to them, uh, messengers. Um, but maybe some things that we should look at. This is one. I actually have a book on my shelf, um, and I've listened. I've been following the guy's podcast for years now. Um, it was a book given to me by a member of my parish in Indiana, and it was right before. Actually, I think it was after I had already left the parish, but I was still living in the parsonage. And he just stopped by one day. They gave me this book and told me I had to read it. I've never gotten around to reading it, but I started listening to his podcast because uh, I met him at a 1517 conference uh, two years ago, I think. Um, he was displaying for the Logos Bible software because he worked for them at the time. And uh, the software I use, that's what you're seeing on the screen, is from Logos. Um, but regardless, he has a podcast. Um, I can't even remember what it's called, but I listen to it every week. Anyway, he, um, he has a book called The Unseen Realm, and it, and it deals with the spiritual and all the ways that the, the spiritual realm is confessed in the Old Testament. Um, and, uh, and then he likes, oh, his, his podcast is called The Naked Bible Podcast. So he just tries to read the Bible as the Bible is, like in context, um, according to the grammar, according to the language, but then also taking into account um, ancient and modern scholarship, right? And and just letting the Bible speak for itself and not always trying to make it say something that we want it to say, but just letting it say what it says. And especially when it comes to like the spiritual um, domain, um, talking about angels and demons and all of that kind of stuff, um, there's always that danger in the modern era now too, because they cannot be seen, then to kind of like reason it away or just act as if it's just kind of you know, pious superstition of the ancients, and now, you know, we're more reasonable than they are. And so I really appreciate that. And, and some examples of this is, again, the way that, that God spoke to the people of old. Yeah, Michael Heiser is his name. You know him. You've heard that name? Naked Bible Podcast. Also, um, he's doing a great series right now, too. Uh, he has no, like, denominational affiliation, but he's really a quality scholar, and he's well-read. Uh, and he's very accessible, you know, to somebody who's not a Bible scholar type. Uh, what were we going to talk about? Oh, yes, I was going to show you some examples of how God revealed his word uh, to the prophets of old. So, for example, Second Kings, or First Kings 22. Uh, I've got to scroll down a little bit here. Uh, I'm not quite there yet. 19, I think it's 19. Oh, yes, here we go. So this is uh, Micaiah. Uh, speaking to Jehoshaphat, I think. Yep. Did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil, said the king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat. Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner, and another spoke in this manner. Then the spirit, a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look. All right, that's the end of that direct discourse talking about the heavenly vision. The Lord has put a lying spirit in his mouth and of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. Wow. 
So uh, this should sound familiar to you. Of course, this is how God spoke uh, to Isaiah, the famous throne room vision of Isaiah 6, right? Uh, which we sing in the Sanctus. Um, or most, even more vividly, we sing in Isaiah Mighty Seer in days of old. Uh, on We like to sing it at Reformation when we do uh, service five, right? Luther's, um, when he wrote hymns for all the parts of the divine service, right? So he has the, the Sanctus hymn, Isaiah, mighty seer in days of old. That one, yeah. Um, where with the burning coals, you know, and the tong, and put it on his mouth, right? Um, so that's another another example. But here we have Micaiah, one of the Lord's prophets, doing it that way, having some similar experience. Um, Jeremiah talks about this too. Jeremiah twenty three, I think verse eighteen. Yeah, here we go. For who, who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? So standing in the counsel of the Lord, right? Uh, and then he keeps talking, talking, talking. And then look at this. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had, has caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned. So being in, in this like heavenly counsel, um, and it, it, it's it's... What kind of understanding? I mean, is it a, is it a uh, well? It's like being caught up into the third heaven, as uh, Saint Paul says, right? Which is kind of an obtuse expression, right? Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. He says, right? So uh, even it sounds like Saint Paul had a similar kind of experience. Uh, Amos says this: Surely the Lord uh, God does nothing unless He reveals His secret to His ser- or mystery. Really, is the better word there. Um, to his servants, the prophets. So he has to reveal that. Um, now, of course, um, probably the biggest example of this, probably the most noteworthy one, there's, there's examples in, in uh, Ezekiel too. I think Hebrews draws quite a bit on Ezekiel, just as John does, but probably the most famous is Daniel 7. All right, so of this heavenly throne vision. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. This is Daniel speaking of his experience here. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. And I watched then, because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. That's the speaker who stands in front of the altar. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, there's that Son of Man title that Jesus assumes to himself, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, which would be the Father then, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Ah, yes, that will come up in our reading. (laughs) The glory of God, Um, dominion, kingdom. Um, this sounds familiar, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. Right? So now we, um, now in this time, he has spoken to us by his son in these days. Right? But then the eternal kingdom is one without days. Right? It's everlasting. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. All right. So just a few examples there of um, the kind of uh, experience that some of the prophets had um, as to how they um, what they saw they actually describe being in the presence of God of course you can think of Moses upon the mountain and God gives him the tablets as written with the finger of God right would be another example um God s- speaks to Noah <laughs> through a messenger of some sort right um I think we usually think of it like Monty Python style where there's God the Father up in heaven right <laughs> and the clouds open and he speaks from heaven. Uh, of course, that's not entirely wrong because that's what happened at the baptism of Jesus, right? Or at his transfiguration in both cases. Um, Abraham um, speaks with the Lord. He has a meal with him, right? And then he meets Melchizedek, or, you know, which maybe is the pre-incarnate Christ. You have also have Isaac and Jacob. You have Jacob wrestling with God. So he, he gets God's word as he um, demands a blessing from him, right? Moses and Aaron, Samuel and Nathan, David the psalmist, Solomon, uh, and the sages. God speaks to them in all different ways, right? And sometimes through the prophets, other prophets, sometimes um, by way of their, their fathers, 
um, and sometimes through um, the angel of the Lord, that is the pre-incarnate Christ himself. Um, so, yeah, that's how it happened uh, in days of old. But now he speaks to us, that's to you and to me and to all people directly by way of the Son, through, not through intermediaries, not through a messenger, not through other mouthpieces, but directly in the person of Jesus. So, and that Son is one of his proper names, as I said before. All right. Um, so this, I mean, it's writing to the Hebrews, but I think Gentiles, of course, are included in this, and that's going to be one of the topics here in the book, right? Is that by the prophets was given to the to the Jewish fathers, but now um, his son is going to speak to all people, the whole congregation. Oh, and I suggested this last week, and I think it's worth mentioning. It's a sermon, so we always should consider it in in the context of divine service, right? So he's speaking in the context of of the service. He's speaking to the Christian assembled congregation. All right. So after introducing God as the speaker, right, to the congregation, um, now he's going to explain why the son, or why his son is so uniquely um, qualified now to be the messenger, the mouthpiece. All right. So first of all, we see that God has appointed his son as heir of all things. So God creates the whole universe, and then he gives to his son all authority in heaven and on earth, right? That he gives that over to him. Here's probably an allusion to Psalm 2. So let's go there. I think it's worth doing. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give it to you. The nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Right? So you see all things are inherited by him, as was foretold by the prophet, by Dan, David. I think it's a Psalm of David, Psalm 2, should be. Eh, there's no, no author listed, so I'm pretty confident David then. All right, so you see that there. So the psalm, psalmist foretells um, this, the son of, of the father being the inheritor of all things. Um. Actually, I think there might also be a sense of David and the inheritance promised to the son of David, right? And for this, we probably need to look at Psalm 89. So let's jump there. Here we go. Yeah. And we just talked about this. When did we pray this? Two weeks ago. Was This was our psalm two weeks ago. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. Oh, so there it is. And I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand, that's the hand of power or authority, really, over the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Isn't that beautiful? So you have it there, that he has authority over the, over the seas and over the rivers. Over, um, and it also has the identity that he's the son of the father. All right, so you have this idea of um, like a prince, but um, maybe vice regent is the right would be the better name for this. You know, where he, it's the father's authority, but then the father exercises his authority by way of the son, right? And then also the spirit is sent, who proceeds from both. So I think that's important. So Psalm two certainly is in mind here, um, and of course the inheritance is given to him when he puts all things under his feet. Right, um, referring to Psalm 110, I believe, which will come up later. All right, let's see what else. So he pointed him heir of all things, and then also through whom also he made the worlds. Now, what a confession is that? And by worlds, you know, you could translate that as ages or eons. Literally in Greek, it's eons. Okay, or ionon in Greek actually is how we say it. So what do we mean by ages or eons or worlds? Um, this is, um, it's a temporal spatial term, technically. So it's time and space together, put all together. So it's, um, he made all of the successive ages. Um, there's actually a, um, a Jewish philosopher from, I believe, the 7th century. He lived on an island, Melito, I think. I can't remember which island he lived on. Um, who said that we are now in the third age of the world, right? So there's um, 
There's like the primordial age and then the age of the prophets and then the age of the church, that kind of thing. Don't know where that is. But but there is a sense that um, the world turns, right? And it seems like things repeat and we move from chaos and disorder to order and, and peace and tranquility and back to chaos and disorder. And he does all of that. Um, but here, of course, he made all worlds. Um, he made everything that we have, right? He is the word, thinking back to the prologue in John's gospel, he is the word that the Father spoke that brought all things into being, right? And that's, that's the confession here too. And not only brought all things into being, and I think this is really important to note, um, but this is the reason why I prefer ages over worlds. I think that's how I translated it. Um, through, through whom he also made the ages, right? Um, the reason I prefer that is because he's active and ongoing in creation, all right? And this is one of the problems. Um, sometimes you get this from, I think even from Christians or um, some theologians where they say, well, yes, I certainly believe that God brought all things into being, um, but then he steps back and he set into motion the evolutionary progress, right? And he set us towards evolving into who we are today or into a higher form. Um, that's contrary to the scriptures <laughs> because the highest form of man is already known to us. It's Jesus. We don't need to transcend our humanity. It's actually that we need to be um, assumed into the Son, that we become conformed to the image of the Son, to quote, to quote uh, John again, right? Uh, that, that's the purpose of God's Word. That's the purpose of our gathering together, uh, one another in koinonia and fellowship around God's Word and around His gifts, is that we would be um, changed from, from that, those who we are in, as sin, in sin and be brought together into one body, into the Son, be conformed to Him, and that our lives would be uh, pale, but yet reflections of who He is. Because He is the, of course, bears the image of the only begotten. He is the only begotten, and we bear His image through our baptism. All right. So then He says, um, Who being the brightness uh, of His glory? I, I like that expression. I like that translation. I think it's pretty good. Um, this word for brightness is a little bit. Uh, obscure that can be un- understood as like outward radiance but it can also be understood as like um, the reflected light like think of the moon which reflects the light of the sun or a mirror reflects the light of the sun so it can be either way um, but i think what we want to understand here is he is he's being he is the brightness of god's glory he is the revelation of the glory of god he doesn't reflect God's glory. He is God's glory. So the glory cloud that dwelt in the tabernacle, that's Jesus. <laughs> okay? Pre-incarnate, of course, before he is born of Mary. Right? He's not, he's not a, a placeholder for a theophany. Like in the Old Testament, we call those theophanies. Theos, meaning God, and phanos, meaning revelation. So God reveals himself in many ways in the, Old Test, in the days of old, to quote the Quite, quote the writer here, so think, we have the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, we have the burning bush, we have um, the three men that visit Abraham, we have um, the angel that leads the people into battle, like with Joshua, and we have all of these, we have the, the man who wrestles with Jacob, I mentioned earlier, right? all these ways that God reveals himself, um, but now in Jesus we have the full glory of God, not, not um, stand in or reflected glory, but the actual glory, the visible appearance of God who manifests himself to us. Um, This is actually what we say in the Nicene Creed, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but we'll get to this in a minute. God of God, light of light. Not reflection of God and reflection of God's light, but he is the light that shines in the darkness. He is God in flesh. Of course, you believe that. You know that. But it's also, of course, confessed by the fact that he is son and he has God's name. Um, it's interesting that there's, there's an apocryphal book, um, that comes between the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's included, it was included in all the German Bibles. Luther had no problem including it and, and just noting that it is meant for devotional reading for Christians, but not, um, we don't draw any doctrine from it. Um, the wisdom of Solomon and wisdom of Solomon seven, verse 25 says this, uh, wisdom is the pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty, the radiance of eternal light, the spotless mirror of God's working, the image of his goodness. So wisdom is the reflection, is God's glory being revealed, right? 
that's pretty helpful, I think. Um, now, think about your life. Where is the glory of God for you? It's where his word is. All right, now this is really important. Um, his word is the glory of God revealed to you. Right? So when, when um, I think this is quite evident in the Aaronic benediction at the end of the divine service, right? Where we say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. That's not a promise of something that's to come, although that's true too. It's actually, I'm actually saying to you, God has shown his face upon you. He, his countenance is lifted up towards you. He has shown his face upon you. You have seen the glory of God in that you've received both Jesus, his word, and you've received his body and blood in the supper. That is the glory of God. And unfortunately, people think, well, it's just something nice we do together sometimes. Um, or it's just like a pale shadow of the things that are to come. No. Uh, and, and for this reason, I actually reject, I know you can make an, I think you can make a case for it, but I really don't like the language of a foretaste of the feast to come. Uh, it was a very new expression. It came out, it was a, I can't remember the theologians. I tracked this down. There was a theologian in the late seventies. He, he dealt with worship and then it was adopted for Lutheran book of worship. Um, then Lutheran worship, our hymnal picked it up and then, um, and then it's made its way into, I think service one and two, right? A you know, foretaste of the feast to come. No, we receive Christ's body and blood. It's the same body and blood. It's the same. And when we see him in the supper, we're seeing the same glory that we'll see in the heavenly throne room. Yes, I know, through a mirror dimly, that kind of thing. But, but it's not a different meal. It's not a different body and blood. It's not a representative body and blood. It is the same feast. All right. Yeah. Yes, the glory cloud it equals Jesus. I see this in the comments. His word is the glory of God. That's right. Yeah, and I think we've missed that. I think we've missed that because we think of as words as being secondary to sight. But as I have um, quote um, Professor, well now retired, um, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, right? Um, he calls these things your earballs, <laughs> right? Because you hear and by hearing you see. That's how God works. That's how his son works. His son is the word, right? Um, and you see he's the express image of uh of his person Ugh. okay now this word for person is kind of tricky so um it's but it's worth it's worth actually doing the legwork to to break it down um express image i would say express imprint all right would be actually a pretty good word for this image character uh, character um, this has to do with like coins or like a stamp, right? Um, so it's been expressed. When you express a stamp, you know, you obviously put ink on it and you press it, right? Or think more of like a press, a stamp press, right? Um, but of his person, this word person here, oh, not just a metal stamp, by the way, um, like a wax seal, that would be imprinted, right? Yeah, you, you melt the wax and then you would imprint it with like the signet seal. All right, so that's be another one. The word here for person, <laughs> we're going to do a little bit of work on this one, is uh, hypostasis, hypostasis. Some people, I think that's probably actually how it's supposed to be pronounced, hypostasis in Greek. This is the word um, that is translated in the Nicene Creed, which was originally written in Greek, as being of one substance. All right, so maybe we should look at English Standard. Let's see what it says. Exact imprint of his nature. Okay, so nature, person, substance. All right, substance in the creed, person here in New King James, nature here in ESV. I have no idea if you have a different translation, what it is, what NIV or any of those other translations say, but I bet we probably end up with five or six different words. That's because there's no single English word that really gets to the bottom of what this word means. Um, it's, it's more of a metaphor than it is an, an abstract idea. We usually think of it as an abstraction, but it's not. It's, it's actually meant to bring clarity. Um, let's see. So this uh, dictionary over here, this is my um, short little kittle, as they call it. It's the short dictionary. <laughs> um, translates it this way, according to Aristotle. That which settles at the bottom, the sediment. Okay, now that's different than person, nature, and substance, right? But that which settles at the bottom, the substance, anything set under the subject matter of a speech or poem, 
And then there's this translation. And this is what they suggest is the New Testament translation. If the foundation or ground of hope, confidence, and assurance. The foundation, the ground, um, ground of hope, confidence, or assurance. Um, and then it can be substance, the real nature of a thing, the essence. All right. So it has a kind of all of that meant. It's a, but it's what everything's built upon or what it stands under. Now, abstractly, it can mean, let's see what it says here, uh, as an object or some kind of philosophical idea that's the foundation. Um, but this isn't a metaphorical term used to just describe the underlying nature of the Son of God. That's not what's going on here. What, it, what's tr what this word is used for, and this is how the Nicene Creed uses it as well. I'm going to just read this because I had to find some <laughs> research on this. Because um, I know when you confess the Nicene Creed, you're probably just as confused. Being of one substance with the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Well, think of that, because that's, the great, that's actually a great way to understand this. We're confessing that even though the Son is di a different person with his own unique identity, his being comes from God and is always determined by God. As God's Son, he is the same divine being as God, the same divine nature. He was and is and will always be of one substance with God, as we say in the Nicene Creed. Uh, now, in the Nicene Creed, it's uh, homoousius rather than the noun hypostasis. Um, but there's all sorts of things I can refer to on that. All right. He does not exist and cannot exist apart from God who shares his own being with him. So that's what's, that's what's trying to be confessed here is that he shares of the same being. He is with God. He's of the same. He, has, he bears the same signet seal, if you like. He has the same foundation. He's the same stuff. Exactly the same stuff, actually. All right. He's not only God's glory. He is God. And then, um, not only have we now then described Jesus' relationship to, to the Father, the Son's really eternal relationship to, to God, um, but now he's also going to describe he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So with this, he's talking about um, God, well, really the Son's ongoing management of the world, right? So that's connected to what we saw here through whom he also created the world in verse 2. Now he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is a mind-blowing idea to me, is that Jesus, by speaking, causes everything to be. The world to spin, the sun to shine, um, the seed to sprout, the rain to fall. Right? But that's, of course, a very powerful idea. Not just, not just power here, dunamis. You know, but think about how that connects to the liturgical life of the church or how it even um, to your daily life in the word, especially in prayer. You call to him with a word. He hears that word. And having heard that word, he speaks a word which does what it says. Right? So he comes to the paralytic and he says, take up your bed and walk. And the man gets up and he walks says to the storm be still and it's and it's still right i mean these are obvious manifestations of it in the life of jesus but this has always been true and it continues to be true today but what we forget and this is our sinful nature um that the clouds our vision that makes us dumb or stupid um depending on how you want to think about it we think that now because jesus has ascended to the right hand of the father that we're here um to fend for ourselves that he's apart from us. Not only is that naive, but it's faithless. <laughs> okay? Uh, he cares for us daily. Oh, wow. And that's good too. Uh, on Revelation, uh, excuse me, on Reformation Sunday, we'll also sing, uh, We All Believe um, in One True God. Not the, no, not One True God. We all believe in One True God. Oh, it's the same, the same words. There's two different creedal hymns that Luther wrote. Um, um, but there's a line in there. I find my hymnal. Who upholds us by the power of his might, I think is how it goes. I mean, Luther is such a great scholar of the Bible and of all scriptures that he just brings it, brings it all to bear in his hymnody. All right. We all believe in Jesus Christ, his own son, 
our Lord possessing an equal Godhead throne and might, source of every grace and blessing. Born of, of Mary, Virgin Mother, by the power of the Spirit, word made flesh, our elder brother, that the lost might life inherit was crucified. Okay. Oh no, here it is. It's, the, it's, it's actually attached to the Father. Right? But it, the Son is with the Father, so that's fine. Through all snares and perils leads us, stanza one, watching that no harm betide us, he cares for us by day and night. All things are governed by his might. Wonderful confession of the first article of the Creed, right? Okay. Love that. I know the tune's a little challenging, um, but actually I think it's beautiful too. Beautifully conveys the text. So uh, just suffer your way through it and enjoy it. Okay. <laughs> so he holds all things um, by the utterance of his power. So just as he made all things by speaking, he still preserves all things by speaking. The Son speaks the Father's words that sustain the world and fulfill God's plans for it. And his plans for you. So his word is life-giving. It's life-sustaining. Um, it's the breath of God. I think that's also important to remember. But not only then is um, the Son in, in the image of God, right? The heir of all things the one who made all things, who is the glory of God, who bears, who carries, shares in God's nature, who upholds all things. But then, he is also um, the one who makes purification for our sins. All right? Isn't that a wonderful move? And that we'll see this really play out in chapter 9. Right? But he's the one who makes, remakes all things that were made good at the beginning and remakes them by purifying for them um, so that once again we are very good. Um, purification for sins, of course, we're going to deal with this quite a bit, but uh, you know, it's just like what we read last week from Leviticus 16, right? Thinking about the high priest and all the sin offerings and the blood of the two sin offerings that cleanse the sanctuary, the priesthood, the congregation of Israel for the impurity of their sin, including the high priest, right? And his family. And that, but that's ongoing, repeated, regular, continual sacrifices, blood being shed. But now we see he makes full and complete atonement for our sins once and for all. Um, this is how it says it in, in chapter 9. So we'll telegraph this a little bit, okay? How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Right? So you see how he makes full atonement for your sins. So it's more than just what we saw in the Old, in the Old Testament. It's, a, it's type and anti-type, as we talked about in our uh, morning prayer. It's shadow and figure. It's um, dimly and then brightly shining. Okay. So Jesus is far more than any of the priests of the Old Testament. Even, the, even if we put them all together, you still don't have what, what Jesus is, who Jesus is for us. Right. Um, and all the blood of bulls and goats could not atone for sins, right? As we heard from, well, as we'll hear later on. Uh, and while the act of purification, this is important, um, culminates in his death, so Jesus Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins, it didn't begin there and it doesn't end there. All right, it actually begins um, with our baptism into Christ, right? And it ends with our death and our life in the tomb. Um, actually, the whole service of Jesus from his birth, from his incarnation, all the way through to his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all of that is the way that Jesus then purifies um, God's people with his blood and prepares them for their work now in the heavenly sanctuary, right? Which he brings us into. So again, think of divine service, right? We begin the service in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit the name of our baptism, right? Where we were washed clean, purified, right? We confess our sins. We are forgiven. Again, our, our conscience is made clean um, by that holy declaration. We hear God's word. We pray his word. We plead for mercy. Lord, have mercy. We hear that in his, in, we actually confess his incarnation, not just in the creed, but in the glory in Excelsis every Sunday, right? Glory be to God on high and on earth. Peace, goodwill among men. That's the, that's the song of the angels at his birth. Right, and so we, and of course we have we have all things. Um, we even have the, the the final day is also confessed by us in the divine service. Lord, let your servant depart in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. It's all there, right? The whole life. 
Um, and so I think the sermon here, just as our liturgy does, is trying to bring bring you into participation um, in the heavenly in the heavenly realm, right? With Christ, who is now with you by faith, and you will see face to face on the last day. And we'll see this um, because he actually quotes here. Yeah, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is basically a straight up quote from Psalm 110. Let's just go there so you can see it. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. All right. So you see that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Um, that'll be cited again in, in later on in chapter 1, verse 13. We've got it in Ephesians 1, Colossians 3, um, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 12. Basic, what I want to suggest is actually probably need to read through Psalm 110 each week um, because it's, it seems to be the backbone of this sermon. All right, As much as Leviticus is and all, all of that, but we have all of the, the language here, like you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. You will shatter the king. I mean, we get quotes from all through Psalm 110. Um, it's not a long psalm. Maybe we'll pray that next week before we begin. Um, we get it all through. Why are we going to John 6? Who knows? All through Hebrews. Okay. Uh, but it's in this prologue, it's, it's, um, it's introduced here. All right. Okay. So Psalm 110, I talked about that. What else did I want to talk about here? Uh, the majesty on high. Of course, we already looked at, at Daniel 7, right? So we had the Ancient of Days and that throne vision and the way that the prophets were given that vision. Um, having become as much superior to the angels, all right? Um, he was always superior to the angels, uh, but now um, it's, it's quite clear, I think. Um, spatial, it's really a spatial metaphor. It's not so much uh, in terms of ordering of things. It's just where the angels are in relation to Jesus, right? So he humbled himself to be born uh, in the likeness of man. And having been born in the likeness of man, he humbled himself even to die, and dying death upon the cross. And that's a spatial reference. It's not so much in terms of importance, but it's just more in terms of location, right? But now, of course, sitting at God's right hand, he sits above the angels, as we see in, the, in those heavenly throne room visions. Um, so the angels are like courtiers, couriers of the heavenly king who minister to him. And now that the son is sitting as co-regent of the father and serves him as high priest at his right hand, now you can see how the angels then serve him, right? Well, they served him in his own earthly ministry, even though spatially they didn't. But I think the angels ministered to him, say, for example, after his um, or after he was tempted in the wilderness. They ministered to him after he's tormented um, in prayer in the garden, right? We have that. All right. Now, what about the name, though? Um, and the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What name is being talked about here? Um, there's actually a lot of debate about this name. But I don't think it's son, because we've already had that named here in chapter 2. But the name uh, here is going to come up later, I think in verse 10. Yep, there it is. The name I think that's being referred to here is Lord, right? And Lord, Adonai, in Hebrew is a substitution for the divine name, which we usually, well, Protestants call Yahweh. I'm, I'm not a big fan, but it's fine. It's kind of a placeholder for the divine name that wasn't pronounced um, the most holy name. It's usually translated Kyrios, right? In Hebrew, Adonai, right? So that's the name that he has. It's more excellent than theirs. It's actually that he bears God's name. He bears his divine name, I am. Think about in John's gospel especially, how often does he say that? Uh, there's all the I am statements of John's gospel. Um, we actually saw this in, um, we were looking at the high priest from Leviticus uh, way back in chapter 8. Remember, he had the turban on his head, but what was in the, remember the plate that was put on the turban as we studied that? It was in Exodus as well, Exodus 28, 29. But I think we saw it from Leviticus 8. Yeah, the plate said, Holiness to the Lord. And it was that, um, that divine name was on there. 
but it wouldn't be pronounced. They would only read it. Um, so high priest, Lord, maybe is the name that's going on here. Uh, but there's all sorts of names in the ancient world, right? And here, more excellent name. What would be the most excellent name? More, the greatest name. Not as only his son, and is he God, is he Lord? But none of those quite, um, they're not just titles, but they're status and authority. He also bears the name firstborn and, and Christ, which di- disclose also his identity as God's son. So, I mean, it could be any of these. Um, let's look at Second Samuel, actually, 7. All right, so this is Nathan with David. And this is regards to building the temple. I don't know where to jump in here, but I think, how about verse 4? But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, there's that Yahweh, um, of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you, wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you and i will make for you this memory speaking to david a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth and i will appoint my place for my people israel and will plant them now this is in context again of nathan talking to david about building the temple right but what does the lord say i don't dwell in a temple in a temple made with hands right and then jesus comes along and says destroy this temple referring to his body and he'll raise it up in three days, right? And what name is attached to his body? What name is attached to him? He's Jesus, right? The greatest name. Um, at, think about how it said, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. Why? Because it's the greatest name. It's the name that is above all other names, right? Um, now, I did mention this, and I think it's worth, I've, I've kind of referenced to it a few times, but it's worth remembering, let's get back to Hebrews, that the prologue of Hebrews, so chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, um, became very significant in what's called the Christological debates, the debates about who Jesus um, is, his nature as the Christ, in the, um, let's see, it would have been the 3rd and the 4th centuries of the church. Right? And there were church councils called at Ephesus, at Nicaea, and at Constantinople. Nicaea twice. Okay, now you're hearing Nicaea and the council. So guess what came out of the Council of Nicaea? That's right, the Nicene Creed. Um, ultimately, it was ratified at the Council of Constantinople. And so then it became known initially as the Nicaea-Constantinople Creed. Constantinopolian, I think, Creed. Uh, and then it got shortened to just Nicene Creed. All right, and it, and this text in particular, um, I think has its its greatest legacy. Well, one, it's the text for Christmas Day. It's the it's the traditional epistle for Christmas Day, which is beautiful, right? Because it confesses so fully who Jesus is. The gospel being John chapter one, the epistle being Hebrews chapter one. Beautiful, right? Love it, because um, you get to like who is Christ, and we're 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 celebrating his incarnation. We need to celebrate both who he is who he has become for us as man, and why he was born man, that is to die for our sins, to save us. All right? So um, this this becomes really primary subject material or content material for the Nicene Creed. Don't know what the dog's barking at. Maybe you heard him. All right, so the first thing um, is that it confesses that uh, God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, is of one substance with the Father, right? So we talked about that, the exact imprint of his nature of the same hypostasis. So that's the first thing that they use. He doesn't, he differs from God because he's the son. He's not the same as God, but he's of the same nature of God. This is where it comes from. Um, second, 
uh, even though he ha- the son has the exact imprint of God's substance, his relationship to the father is, we might say, um, asymmetrical. He derives his divine being from the father. Since he has the same um, glory as God, he is fully reflect, perfectly reflects that glory. He is that glory. Therefore, as we say in the creed, he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Right? And you see where we got that? The radiance of the glory of God. Verse 3. Right? So now you're starting to get where all this comes from <laughs> in the Nicene Creed. Um, third, that God not only made the world through him, um, but also appointed him as heir of all things. It's just what we say in the Nicene Creed. All things were made through him, or were made by him. All right? He's not like an intruder or an interloper. Or he just appears on the scene and then disappears. But he's the maker and manager of all of the Father's estate. You know, he's the son that cares for the Father's vineyard, if you like. And since he sustains the world with, world with his powerful word, he has a personal interest in it, and namely in its salvation. Which is why the word that Jesus speaks to Adam and Eve at the beginning is that your offspring will crush the serpent's head and save the people. Um, so we have, oh, also sits at the right hand of the Father, right? Uh, from the Nicene Creed, reigning over heavens and earth. So he is Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, very God of very God. We have all of that there. Um, I mentioned that it's a wonderful, well, actually I did mention this, but it's right on Christmas Day. I mentioned that it wonderfully confesses the incarnation, um, but looking here at my notes, really it's a, it's a summary of all the, uh, of the entire Bible. <laughs> Everything we know of the Son is confessed here in four short verses. So even before all of the New Testament is brought together, um, this really confesses the whole content, arrangement, focus, and purpose of, of the Christian scriptures. It says it all. In four verses, we have made purification for our sins, sits down at the right hand of the Father. He's the name by which all names are saved. He made and creates and sustains all the world, right? He is the heir of all things. He has spoken to us and he continues to speak to us even now. It's all there, which is really beautiful, right? Uh, and, and that also remember that he's then the speaker to us in the divine service. He's the one that keeps speaking to us. He, and oh, also the radiance of God's glory that we see his face. All right. Um, Luther has a wonderful series of sermons on the Apostles' Creed that he preached in Torgau in 1533. Uh, those are in Luther's works. Uh, what volume are they in? Volume th- uh, Weimar Ausgabe. Oh, I got it out of the Theology of Martin Luther. Althaus. Um, but this is what Luther says about the second article, namely. Um, re- I think it connects well with this. And maybe this is a good place to kind of finish up today and then we'll dig into verse 5 next week. Uh, Christ has purified everything through his body so that because of him, everything that belongs to our natural birth and this life does not damage us at all. But it, it is considered to be as pure as what belongs to him because through baptism and faith, I have been clothed with his birth and life. Therefore, everything I do is pleasing to God and is properly called a holy walking, standing, eating, drinking, sleeping, and waking, etc. I'll say that again. Everything I do is pleasing to God and is properly called a, a holy walking, standing, eating, drinking, sleeping, etc. In every Christian, this becomes a completely holy place. Even though he still lives in the flesh and is definitely impure in himself, through faith, everything about him is pure. This, however, is an alien holiness and yet our own because God wills to see nothing that we do in this life as impure in itself. But everything becomes holy, precious, and acceptable to him through this child who makes the whole world holy through his life. Um, um, and then maybe for a closing prayer, I don't see any questions, so maybe for a closing prayer, um, there's a lovely hymn, it's called God is Spoken by His Prophets. It's a Lutheran service book, 583. Three, and I think this stanza really gets to the heart of what we just said. All right, God has spoken by Christ Jesus, Christ the everlasting Son, brightness of the Father's glory, with the Father ever one, spoken by the Word incarnate, God of God, before time was, light of light to earth descending. He reveals our God to us. Okay, 
So that uh, concludes chapter one, verse one through four. <laughs> I didn't think we'd get very far. Uh, and what's going to come next as you read forward is um, text after text after text, or seven of them, to prove the point that he just made. So this is, you know, a really big assertion um, that he's been making here as to who Jesus is. But he's not going to leave you without words. Uh, Old Testament scripture, prophets, psalmists, etc., um, to demonstrate that the truthfulness of what he has just spoken. All right. So don't just take my word for it. Listen to the word which you know. All right. And so we'll look at that next time. Thanks for joining us this evening. Again, uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us. If uh, you're watching this on delay, fine. You can um, post your questions below. We'll either uh, respond to it if it can be short. Otherwise, I'll uh, try to respond to it next week. Uh, and then, of course, you can join us in the morning for Congregation of Prayer. So have a blessed evening. We'll see you soon.